Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, and with me today, as in every edition of these podcasts, is my friend and professional sparring partner, the author and fund manager, Peter Simon. In this series of 10 podcasts, we will be discussing a number of the big themes that are currently preoccupying the financial markets, in which we have both been professionally involved for the best part of four decades. A tour of duty that prompted us to choose, very much tongue-in-cheek, the title of this series. Are we wise or simply old and set in our ways? We leave you to decide. Good morning, Peter, and off we go again. Another discussion about the state of the world. We've uh, talked in the past few weeks about some of the books and films that have had an influence on us and touched on topics and significance in our lives. But today I thought we would go back and we're going to have a discussion about what's happening in very broad terms in the financial markets, and in particular reference to the bond market. What's going on there and what the significance of that is in the context of the pandemic, the recovery, and the plans by governments to raise money to pay for some of the measures that have been taken during the pandemic. And as you have been following the bond market for many, many years, I thought we might kick off. I'd just ask you where you think we are in terms of the bond market cycle and uh, what's going on. I'm very glad to be back online. And I'm very glad that we've chosen this topic because it's very topical right now. We've refrained from talking about the financial markets in the last couple of months or more, among other things, because we needed to see the financial markets settle down a little bit. So we need to go back a few months to see what happened when. And I would say that back in November of last year, at the height of the general despondency in terms of the coronavirus, there was some breaking news about the vaccines and there was finally light at the end of the tunnel. And although reaching that light at the end of the tunnel in terms of vaccinations and people getting better was still a distant hope or dream, nonetheless, the markets, as is their usual habit, they look ahead and they look across the valley. And so there was an instant change of mentality by fixed income investors who thought that the economic weaknesses around the world because of COVID would persist and would result in perennially low bond yields. That kind of mentality changed big time uh, over the coming weeks and months. And if you look at what happened to bond prices. And I would suggest we take US Treasury bond prices as the benchmark, because it is the benchmark. Then you will see that what happened in the first quarter of this year was one of the biggest bond bear markets, I think probably experienced in many decades, whereby the bond yield almost doubled from a obviously very low yield to a yield level which was reminiscent of the yield level before the onset of the pandemic. And so investors in bonds, even in US Treasury bonds, which is supposedly the lowest risk asset out there, they probably suffered a permanent loss of capital. And so now the question is, where does this go from here? And about six weeks ago, the bears and the predictors said that yields needed to go up and up and up because inflation is coming back with a vengeance. Inflation is going to be based on excess pent-up demand. And as soon as people can go out and 
spend, they will, and this is going to cause all sorts of reactions in terms of that which causes inflation. And we've seen, Jonathan, we've seen that the usual suspects have actually come out, commodities, for example, and all the cyclical businesses in the stock market. So we really need to ask ourselves, how is inflation going to develop and what a bond price is going to do? And is it the worst place to be invested in bonds right now going forward? Yes, indeed. And one of the important things, as we always say, and by virtue of having been around a long time, we perhaps can see this in a slightly longer perspective than some people. It is important to keep what's happened in perspective, first of all. I mean, there has been a rapid change, you say, since the vaccines at the start of November, the first one was announced. People have completely changed their views about how quickly the economy would recover uh, and so on. Uh, and all the official forecasts are now catching up with that or beginning to catch up with that. Uh, as we speak, the Bank of England has come out saying that we're going to have the fastest rate of economic growth that we've had for many, many years. But of course, that just reflects the fact we went down the long way last year. So we've got to keep it in perspective, I think. As you say, the bond yield has gone up. Uh, I think it actually more than doubled in the US from the low point to the peak in February. And the similar story around the world in, in lots of other things. So it has been quite a dramatic rate of change. But as you say, in a way, we've only just gone back to where we were before the pandemic hit in terms of bond yields. And so the question is whether actually anything more fundamental about the long-term outlook has changed. And I think that is the issue. And that could be growth, rate of growth, or it could be the rate of inflation, as you say. So lots of things to worry about. What do you think the way, best way to actually think about analysing that would be, though? What are we looking for? What are the signs we should be looking for that we are, for example, going to get either a higher or lower rate of growth or a higher or lower rate of inflation than we previously expected? That's the critical point, I think. As usual, you've got it spot on. That is the critical point. And to try and answer the various ingredients to your question, I think an important event was, in effect, the arrival of Mr. Joe Biden as president of the U.S., because, of course, his mentality and his approach to solving the problems out there, economic problems in particular, is quite different from his predecessor. His predecessor was not exactly the kind of person that you'd want to go and have a weekend or spend a holiday with. But in terms of economic policies within the USA, he was not of the same mold as his successor. His successor is very much a tax and spend man a Keynesian man, whereas his predecessor was much more a free markets man. The predecessor was probably an exaggeration in the sense that he wanted to make America great again and all that, and embarked upon protectionist measures which were detrimental in another way. But Joe Biden, of course, has a legacy of leaning, if you like, to the left of center, which, as far as he personally is concerned, is one thing, but he surrounded himself with advisors and ministers who are really very much to the left-leaning uh, mold. And I think it's an important question because if you have an administration that's left-leaning, whilst you have a Congress, Senate, which is neither left-leaning nor right-of-center-leaning because they're in balance, you can ask yourself about the extent to which he can push through his tax and spend policies. But there's no doubting that he has tax and spend policies. Look, for example, and this is part of the bond market problem, look, for example, at what he's intending to do 
to the tax base of not only the so-called wealthiest Americans, but also, in a way more importantly, corporate America. He's intending to raise the corporate taxation rate substantially. And he's also obviously going for the rich, which is, in my opinion, probably being egged on by his advisors around him, but is not necessarily in the spirit of the traditional Americans. So socialism has never really been in the American mentality. And therefore, it's going to be very interesting to see whether he could push through his measures and what effect that will have on the bond market. That's the first thing to see. As soon as you've commented on this, we can then address whether inflation really will be a problem going forward and whether that will cause bond yields to go up to double once again from where they are now. Yes, I, I think it's a very interesting question, a very obviously absolutely crucial question. But there seem to be there's two elements to it, really. One is the question of uh, what is the outlook given the policies are now being embarked on by Biden administration and by other governments around the world, including my own beloved UK government is also planning to spend a lot of money over the next few years. And then there's a second issue of what all the impact of all the new debt that's being created is going to have on the bond market as well. There's a supply of bonds is going to be affected and also the economic outlook. So we might talk about those in turn. But I think the only point I'd make at this point is that it's very difficult, of course, to disentangle the huge spending plans of the Biden administration and indeed in the UK and other countries, distinguish what they're spending in order to deal with the pandemic and what they're spending in order to fulfill their other political ambitions. Uh, and as you say, Mr. Biden is trying to do, I think, both. He's trying to spend a lot of money in order to help the economy recover, in his view, but he's also trying to implement, as you say, uh, some redistribution of income, raise taxes, spend a lot of money on infrastructure and renewable energy and things like that, which fulfill other goals. So I think it's a slightly more complicated picture. The pandemic has complicated what I think otherwise would be fairly simple to analyse. And of course, as you say, we don't yet know whether what he wants to do will actually get through Congress in what form, how far he'll be able to get away with his taxation plans. So I think it is a very interesting. Obviously, it is a step change. I mean, the level of borrowing, we, we just have to mention, I think, because the bond market obviously is the place where governments go to borrow money. The level of borrowing that we're seeing now and we will go on seeing for several years now, is higher than it's been at any time since the Second World War, essentially. Uh, it's back to the levels of the early 1950s in the UK and I think the US as well. So we have got record borrowing, and it's not easy to see how that borrowing can be reduced over the next few years, given the pandemic and its consequences. So you've got this massive problem of a lot of debt there and a lot of supply of bonds coming out, and that's surely going to be a factor in the bond market, the way the bond market behaves over and above, whether it sees inflation coming or not. Quite right. This question is actually increased in importance since the moment a few weeks ago, contrary to everyone's expectations, the moment when the bond market stopped going down and they stopped going down and the yields stopped going up and settled in at the current levels some weeks ago, in spite of the fact that all the doomsday people were prognosticating and forecasting that there was only one way for bond prices to go, and that's down, and only one way for bond yields to go, and that's up. So you suddenly had some mysterious buyer, what I call the marginal buyer, 
who has stepped in and who's prevented bond yields from going up. Now, that complicates the question even more because what you're saying is so true. Not only have the levels of indebtedness around the major economies gone up as a result of the vastly increased budget deficits all over the place, accompanied by, of course, a relaxation of rules. Um, in Europe, for example, the old rules which prevented budget deficits from increasing more than 3%, which is already a lot, have been thrown to the winds, and now it's anybody's guess. So that means that the level of indebtedness is going to explode or has exploded. So what do you do? What do you do to try and cope with that and to try and prevent future generations from being the ones that have to repay these debts and suffer all the consequences associated with a repayment of debts program? And I suppose you could say there are two or three major ways of doing it. The first way of doing it is to uh, forgive the debt completely. In other words, to cause bondholders to suffer huge haircuts and or, I would say, to uh, perpetualize the debts. And I know we talked about this briefly last year. To perpetualize the debts by issuing new debts which have such long maturities uh, or even perpetual maturities, as to make it uninteresting when these debts can be repaid because it'll be so far in the future, if at all, that it's no longer today's problem, but it's tomorrow's or the day after tomorrow's problem. The second way to do it is to inflate away the real value of your debt. That's where the bond yield of today becomes so interesting and important. Because if you think that they can inflate away their debt by all this Keynesian deficit spending, then you will conclude that the debt burden is becoming an irrelevance. And the third way of doing it, which in a way is very closely related to the second way of doing it, is to simply tax your way out. In other words, increase taxation left, right and center, thereby easing the burden on the borrowers. I don't think that any of these three methods really, with a possible exception of perpetualizing your debts, is something which the markets are used to. They're not used to that. They haven't been used to that for a long time. So you could come to the conclusion that taxing your way out of debt is not going to be acceptable to the people at large, the electorate. That giving the bondholders a haircut is also not exactly going to be very popular, especially from so-called risk-free angles such as government bonds. And as far as inflation is concerned, which we need to address, it is not going to be possible despite the short-term things like the base effects and the commodity price rises that we're experiencing at the moment, but to have a perennial proper inflation development over the next few years it simply is not going to be possible because of all the, the ways that the modern economies are run and all the deflationary forces. And therefore, that if you go forward one year, you'll find, to your surprise, that actually bond yields are not much higher than they are today. And therefore, the indebtedness problem is, of course, still there, but is not necessarily destined to get worse and worse and worse as the years go by.
Indeed. And I think the counterpart, I looked at some figures about, again, about the UK, but it's the same about the US, I think, slightly different in some respects. But, you know, while it is true that the, the level of debt in the UK, the government deficit and so on, and the national debt is higher than it's been for many, many years, many decades, the cost of servicing that debt is also lower than it's ever been in history. So it actually provides no incentive for, for governments, unless they're forced to do it, to actually take this as a serious problem in the in the shorter term. So in other words, taxing people more is not necessarily, you need to do something to recover some of the costs that have been lost in the pandemic. But taxing people more, you're not going to get instant re- rewards for it because it's going to cause negative effects rather than solving the bond problem, which at the moment is manageable because the interest costs are so low. And if you're like me and you believe that politicians normally take the path of least resistance and authorities do, they're not going to do too much of that except for political purposes. In other words, I think, you know, the Biden administration is trying to achieve things for other wider purposes than dealing with the national debt. And I think that's going to be generally true of most governments, most politicians. They're going to take the path of least resistance. And that path of least resistance is not to worry about the debt burden too much at this point. So everything, therefore, depends on how the bond market itself reacts. And I think one of the factors we might might just mention before we talk about the inflation outlook is the extent to which the bond market is being influenced by what the central banks have been doing. Because that's a controversial subject, I know. We have maybe slightly different views on that. There have been massive intervention. A lot of the government debt is being bought by central banks as part of their monetary policy. And so a lot of people believe that the interest rates we're seeing in the bond market are not actually fairly representative of what the balance of supply and demand is. And the question is, is that right or is that not right? We are have got negative real interest rates now in the US and in the UK uh, and in many other countries across Europe. And the question is, well, what does that mean for the outlook for economic growth and for inflation? Because if it implies that economic growth is going to be pretty low, then we're not going to be able to grow our way out of it, whatever we do. And therefore, we're not going to have an inflation problem. And I think my instinct is that while we will get some higher inflation in the shorter term, I would be surprised if we get higher inflation in the medium longer term as things currently stand. Uh, But I don't know if you would agree with that or not, Peter. I agree with that totally, that it is unlikely that we will get higher inflation and higher growth in the long term. And if we're right, and obviously it'll take a year or two to ascertain that, but if we are right in our views on this, then that demolishes the argument that bond yields and interest rates are kept at an artificially low level by quantitative easing uh, all around the world. My instinct is to say, and I suspect that your Moses and Methuselah instinct may well be the same, is that the forces that govern the price of money are actually beyond the powers of the central banks. I know one is going out on a limb a little bit in saying this, but I do believe that the demographic problem that we've got all around the world, especially in the developed markets, is such that you're going to have the next generation pay more and more for the current generation or the younger people paying more and more for the older people. And that means that the pension funds out there are continuing to search for yield. And because they've got a lot of cash coming in, and they're always on the lookout for yields, it is going to prevent yields from going up. If you close down all the pension funds from one day to the next, that would be a different subject altogether. 
But I think that what those people who think that the price of money is artificially low, whether it's in the UK or in the US or in the EU, what they're missing is that it's not really the central banks that are keeping the price of money artificially low, nor is the price of money in fact artificially low. It is the shape, not of things to come, but of things as they are already today. And you would need to have a firm view whereby the disinflationary wave that started in 1982, you remember, you remember when we've discussed this already, but when the bond market reached its bottom in approximately 1982 and when the inflation rates around the world reached that top and the economies were closed and protectionism and capital controls and all that, when that started to change, then one of the best, I'm saying one of the best, not the best, but one of the best investments would have been to buy long-dated government bonds and just go to sleep for 30 years. You really have to ask yourself whether this trend, or it's more than a trend, it's a wave, it's a generational wave, can be interrupted today by politicians or whether even politicians are not powerful enough to disrupt that huge wave which is based on the way that the modern economies work today. I think each investor has to make his own mind up with regard to that. I want to mention one thing which came out today which I found very worrying the Biden administration has launched an attack on the pharmaceutical patents by suspending or proposing to spend intellectual property rights. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this now is not only because it's caused a lot of backlash from certain countries and governments that say that it's going to harm developments of the startups in the biotech field, because of the interference of governments in the private sector, but also whether this interference in the private sector, of course, at the moment, because of COVID, is just an excuse, but it will not only not be an interim measure, but it will slowly but surely permeate into different parts of the private sector and cause a sort of big brother a situation whereby the state is more and more involved in business, in the private sector and in people's lives, and whether that in turn will have a negative effect on globalization and cause the sort of bad old days to come back, which in turn will result in the price of money going up, bond deals going up, and therefore interfere in the smooth running of a free economy. These are, in my opinion, Jonathan, the matters and the points on which everyone, every observer, and certainly every investor, has to make up his own mind, whether this is the shape of things to come or whether it isn't because the natural forces of a free economy are going to prevent that from getting worse. Yes, well, that's a good question. I mean, on the drugs companies, of course, and the biotech companies, we've seen... Uh, that many times before with Democrat administrations, they tried to do something, they threatened to do something to the drug industry. It happened with Clinton. It's happened before a number of times. And in the end, it very rarely comes to much. But I think maybe the experience of the pandemic, which has shown quite uh, how dramatically faster drugs can be developed, 
might have changed some people's opinions about that. And they might say that it, it points towards the need for, um, you know, faster development of drugs and therefore for some relaxation in patent protection and so on, which you could argue was too long before. I don't know. It's a complicated one. I'm not sure whether it will actually come to anything. But I think the key point you make is absolutely right, which is the fact that we, you know, as you say, everyone has to make up their mind about, which is, you know, the fact there's no doubt that governments are going to be spending a lot more money over the next few years. Uh, than they've done previously or in recent years, or indeed they were doing before the pandemic hit. So there is going to be an increase in government spending and therefore also an increase in the way that governments get involved in our lives. We've seen that through the restrictions, lockdowns and so on. And so if the case is that there are going to be more government intervention, more state spending of various kinds, that is going to have an impact, no question about it. You have to take a view whether that's going to be effective or not. And historically, of course, there's a lot of evidence that it's not optimal. I'm not going to say it's never justified at all, but it's certainly not optimal. Uh, and the free market does on the whole do a better job than that. But if you look across the whole of society and the big global trends that are going on, I think it's clear there's going to be you know, political pressure for governments to do more, whether you approve of it or not. And that's going to be something that's going to stay with us. And as you say, therefore, the effect of that is going to be, if it turns out to have negative effects, that is going to have an impact on investors' uh, experience uh, on the bond market and on inflation and many other things. So I think it's a kind of balanced outlook. On the one hand, as you say, the, as far as I can see it anyway, the superinflation fears are massively exaggerated. But there are a lot of reasons to be concerned that things may not develop quite as well as we would hope. And I, I guess the final point I would make is just go back to the good old days, Peter, back in before the 1970s. You know, people said that you know, what would the natural rate of bond yields be? What should the bond market be doing? And we used to have a kind of thing we'd say, well, it's the kind of rate of economic growth plus some kind of real return on top of that or some kind of measure of inflation on top of that. And so in the 19th century, they talked about, you know, John Bull can stand anything except uh, 2% on his government bonds. And there was a kind of belief a natural real rate was about 1% or 2%, something like that, sometimes 3%, some people would say. But we're a long way away from that, uh, and we're not going to get back to that anytime soon. And I just don't think we know what the consequences of that are going to be. It's a new regime. If we have permanent negative real interest rates for a long time, that's something which could have a sort of effects we're not actually used to analysing. I'm not quite sure where that takes us. And I think you're right. Nobody really knows where that takes us. And you have to question the extent to which it's useful as an investor. I mean, today we're talking to each other as investors. And I think it's important that we maybe move away from academia into more practical points as investors and um, maybe conclude that we're never going to find out where the natural price of money or the equilibrium price of money or the market price of money will be in a couple of years' time and instead concentrate on proper live businesses, live businesses which grow and which it will enable the investor to increase the returns on his capital over time. Because if you buy a UK gilt today, or if you buy a US treasury bond, let's say 10 years or more, or if you buy a German government bond, God forbid, or a European government bond, God forbid, and I say God forbid because if you buy something today which yields you a negative return and you stick to it through thick and thin, then I really don't see how you can do anything but cement a permanent loss of capital. So I think what you have to do is to try and rise above these discussions which are 
often academic. They still claim that they're more academic than real. And as investors, concentrate on proper businesses that are run by good people that have strong balance sheets and that will grow in the decades to come and that can therefore be considered as long-duration assets, which you can then compare to the quintessential one, which is, a, let's say, a government bond. So what I'm saying to you by conclusion is that I think it's important that we keep an eye on this very, very carefully and make sure, if we can, which we can't, that the government interference that we're experiencing now is not going to get out of hand. Just to finish on the patents and the attack on intellectual property rights, it's nothing new, of course. You have, on the one hand, the pharmaceutical companies who say that unless they make healthy profits, they will not be able to finance the necessary research and development in order to continue to produce the sort of medicine that is required in the various health crises and so on. And to develop medicines in order to do that, you need money, you need to research. And in order to do that, you need to make profits. But of course, then you've got the political side of the argument, which is saying that how come that the consumer of medicine should pay for the profits of the big pharmaceuticals? So you've got these two if you like, strains going on, the, the political strain on the one hand, and on the other hand, the, the real-life aspect, which is that without profit, you can't do research and development, and without research and development, you can't produce new medicines to combat the illnesses that are cropping up all the time. And if President Biden, if his attack on the intellectual property rights of the pharmaceutical industry are going to be successful, then you might appease those people who don't like to see these companies making huge profits, but you're not really helping the health care system around the world. Yes, I mean, I think the issue is, as you said, but it's all a question of degree. You, you know, what is the right level of patent protection? What is the right balance to strike between the need to you know, develop new drugs that people will want in the future. I mean, I think the one thing I would say that is changing is that the speed of, uh, you know, the remarkable effect that we're seeing in lots of different areas of uh, of medicine, the way that we've now got the gene knowledge and so on, and lots of other ways in which they're developing products much more quickly than they did in the past because of the technology. Uh, that does raise, I think, a legitimate question about whether the right balance is we balance we have now between patent protection and product development and so on is the right one. Uh, I think you can argue that. I'm not an expert on that, but I think it's certainly a debate. But I agree, it would be uh, it would be wrong if we went purely for um, the wrong reasons. I don't think that would be a good outcome at all. So I think it's uh, something that needs a lot of uh, careful analysis as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it has to be said that drug companies have been a very profitable place to be as an investor for many years, uh, one of the best performing sectors for many, many years. And uh, the question of what is the right level of profitability for a, an industry as a whole is an interesting question we might come back to at some point. But anyway, Peter, so there we are. We think we know that we don't want to get too excited by the doomsters at the moment about what's going to happen. We're not going to get ever rising bond yields, I don't think. Inflation, we're certainly going to get a spike in inflation. There's no question about that for, for technical reasons, if no other. But beyond that, I think it's, uh, you know, as you say, you've got to make your own decisions and uh, you've got plenty of years to find out. Anyway, let's put it that way. And in the meantime, we hope to stay alive and uh, make a small percentage on our investments as well. 
<laughs> well, if we have as many years to find out in the future as we've had in the past, then Moses and Methuselah will be even wiser in 20 years' time or 30 years' time. And so I certainly look forward to many fruitful discussions of this kind in future, Jonathan. We'll have to call it Moses squared and Methuselah squared, probably something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Very good indeed. Thank you, Peter. We'll look forward to our next discussion. So do I. Thank you, Jonathan. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.